Well, good evening. We haven't had the chance to meet. My name is Naman. I'm one of the assistant pastors here, and I have a privilege of mine to be preaching through God's Word for you. <clears throat> we uh, are picking back up in our, our series through 1 Corinthians, and we apologize for the kind of disjointed schedule that we've been having recently, and all with good things. We were uh, excited to install Gavin Breeden last Sunday here in the building as he pursues the campus minister position at RUF. And in a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate the Reformation, some historic uh, <clears throat> events of, of our church uh, in a broader context. And we'll join with other, with other churches in the area to, to remember that, to celebrate that, to worship God for that. And inevitably, there will be some Sundays off that we have and Thanksgiving and, and Christmas for the holidays. But for the time being, we're, we're jumping back into our First Corinthians series. <clears throat> Pastor John, as he mentioned earlier, most recently preached through the first half of First Corinthians 13, and tonight we'll be looking at the latter half. I'm going to read the entirety of it for us tonight, and so at the conclusion of it, if you could respond uh, with thanks be to God. So let's read First Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 13 together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I, if I devil, deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in, on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. <clears throat> for now we see in a mirror dimly but then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so I come across uniquely as a preacher, I come across this huge challenge that Many of you, if not all of you, have probably heard this passage before, right? It's, it's the quintessential passage that we might have heard at some point in our lives, probably at a wedding, <clears throat> and it's even well-known amongst, amongst secular circles, right? And that's saying something. There are a handful of times where I've seen this passage referenced in movies, in secular movies, um, and so we're situating ourselves uh, in this passage and the challenge is that uh, realizing that these group of verses, and maybe even more so verses 4 through 7 there, are more than just a, a feel-good passage 
for you to turn to or for preachers to present to you as a way of saying, this is what love is. This is what romantic, genuine, life-giving, sacrificing, not self-serving love looks like, right? And that's, that's what I hope I can do at some point, but the challenge of this passage is that it's situated in a text with more context than that. There's temptation for us to hear these verses and for our minds to then drift off to a certain subset of ideas or <clears throat> an impression that we have on this passage. Like we do this with many other Bible verses. For example, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. Now when we read that passage, we're not saying that God is a God who gives you anything you want, right? Because that's not our lived experience anyway. But verse 5 will continue to say, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act, right? The more that we delight ourselves in the Lord, which in the Hebrew actually means make yourself malleable to God, allow Him to shape you, and then He will give you the desires of your heart, which will then actually mirror the desires of God. And a second example, tell me if you've heard this one before, Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How many times have we heard that reference maybe in, in worship, right? If we're praying together, if, if we're in a group together, oh, there's, there's two or three of us that, that checks off this list. Okay, God is with us. His presence in Holy Spirit is with us. I, I'm not minimizing that fact, but that passage is actually situated in the broader context of Matthew 18, which is actually about church discipline. How we address each other when we, when we come against conflict, when somebody has actually wronged you, how do you approach that person, you know, going on one-on-one, -on -one, then bringing a witness with you, and then developing this, this system of accountability so that there is grace and that there is love involved, where two or three are gathered in my name, reconciliation, grace, resolution, renewal can happen. And so we, we come across the same challenge here in 1 Corinthians 13, where we've heard love is patient, love is kind, right? But it's situated in this context, as we've been talking about throughout this entire series, of Paul addressing the church in Corinth for their many serious issues in the church. This is not just Paul's attempt to encourage them, enlighten them, exhort, exhort them to say, this is what love could look like. He's, a, he's doing at least that. But he's doing this in the midst of a very hard, stern, challenging rebuke. For the, these three chapters in 1 Corinthians from 12 through 14, what Paul is actually doing is calling out the church for this egregious sin and sin pattern that they've been engaging in by taking these extraordinary gifts of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, prophecy tongues, healing, those kinds of gifts of the Holy Spirit, taking those gifts as spiritual gifts and, and making it their own, almost kind of saying that they have some sort of stake or claim in them to say that if I can exhibit these gifts, I am probably better than this person next to me sitting in the pew, this other brother or sister in Christ. Now, on surface level, we can begin to see the immediate problems with that, but the Corinthian church, the sin pattern, it was so ingrained in who they were and how they operated that they, they weren't able to see that. So when you read this passage, when you read the familiar words of love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast, this is the context that Paul is addressing. He's addressing a very sick and a very hurt church. 
as it was mentioned in verse 1, if I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong. I'm just making sound for the sake of making sound. Or verse 2, if I have all these powers, if I can actually have the power to move mountains but have not love as I'm seeing in your church, I'm nothing. I have an empty faith. And as he finishes off there in verse 3, if I give all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I can become a martyr for Christ, if I can make this great sacrifice, but I do it without love, it's all for naught. Meaningless, empty sacrifices. What Paul is trying to get at here is that in the Christian faith, in the church, in Christianity, the linchpin of Christianity is love. That there was a very real temptation on the Corinthian church is to operate under some context beyond that. To say that I, so long as I have and I can exhibit these spiritual gifts, I'm set. I think I'm competent enough. I think I can do meaningful work. I think I can uh, be this type of person and elevate my own status. But that's not what Paul is trying to get at here. <clears throat> and we see that as we read the latter paragraph here is that there are a lot of different categories that Paul gives to say, without love, life is incomplete. Without love, life is partial at best, right? And we see that um, <clears throat> in verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. There's this dichotomy between what's temporal and fleeting and what's eternal and everlasting. We've been going through a sermon series in the morning through First Peter, which Peter's main message there is we are exiles, that we live in this world, that we have identities in this world, which we actually don't belong here, like that one day we are going to return back home. And for Christians, home is a different place, much different from here. There's a difference between what we see around us, the temporal, versus the eternal. And as he continues on, um, <clears throat> for we know in part, and I pro prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. There's a difference between what's partial and what's complete, what's whole, as the the key theological term here being we live in the already, but the not yet. We live in the fact that Jesus has already inaugurated His kingdom, but we have not yet seen the full fruition of it as, as He has promised to renew, to restore everything. <clears throat> in Matthew 11, uh, Jesus talks about John the Baptist, of how he, of all the prophets of the Old Testament, was the greatest prophet because he himself had a foot in both the old and the new, right? He, he had this message of repentance and, and saying that the Messiah was coming and the kingdom of heaven was here. And he was considered the greatest because he actually saw Jesus. He actually lived life with Jesus. But he also had a foot in the New Testament because he's inaugurating and, and paving the way for Jesus. But then Jesus continues to say, those who are least in the kingdom of God are greater than John the Baptist, because we have this eternal inheritance, this kingdom that we've been invited to, this already, we can live in hope and anticipation of, of how that kingdom will be fully restored to come. There's a partial aspect of it that we live in now, but it's not yet 
complete. To quote C.S. Lewis here, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, I can only logically explain is that I was made for another world. If there is a warring void, this unquenchable desire hole that we feel in our lives that we try to fill with other things, and that's never fully quenched, fully satisfied, he can only conclude that we must have been made for another home, that we are exiles to the world that we are now. So that was the big temptation of the Corinthian church was to say, the gifts that I have, the spiritual gifts that I can exhibit was enough for me to get by in this world, when in reality, this is not the world that we are called to settle in. So Paul makes an appeal. And what I will argue for in this passage is the most practical way in, that we, in which we can consider how does this passage, this exhortation on love affect us, is this dichotomy between childish ways and ways of when we were older, when we were adults, when we're grown up. So the immaturity and the maturity of the gospel. <clears throat> and as we sit and we pause on that, that idea of, okay, then how does love actually lead us to maturity? Uh, I, I was honest with myself as I was preparing this and as we were thinking, and I, and I asked myself, isn't it much more convenient just to be a kid? Isn't it just much more comfortable to be a child? Uh, the, sum, the winter, sorry, the winter that we were in Boston and our, our daughter, Isabel, was probably around two years old, and we were first-time parents, and I remember distinctly, like, that first winter, we did everything that we could, and we bought everything that we could to make sure that she did not feel cold, right? So that meant, like, full bodysuit with a hood. That meant the, the sleeping bag thing that you see that you can tie to your stroller that you tuck yourself in. And so we're pushing, around, pushing her around through the city. And I could count multiple times where people would come, stop us, and say, that looks comfortable. I wish I could be like that. And I remember thinking, I want to be like that. I want somebody to dress me snugly and warm me and push me around. I want somebody to feed me. I want somebody to, to tell me where you know, my income is coming from next month. I want somebody to give me assurance that I don't have to worry about X, Y, Z. So the, for the kids that are here, kids, do you ever wonder where the food is coming from in your next meal? Do you ever wonder the, the mortgage that your parents are paying on your houses? Right? It's, it's so much more convenient, out of sight, out of mind. But we know, in reality, we can't live that way. We can't live as though we are children. We live in a very unique age. For the first time in history, there were studies and research and take statistics for what you will, but for the first time in history, the most common living arrangement for young adults, so that's anybody from the ages of 18 to 34, maybe many of you, the most common living arrangement now between young adults is living with your parents. Over and above living by yourself, living in marriage or even a partnership with somebody or any other uh, living situation with housemates, roommates. The most common one is living with your your parents by a slight margin, 32%. Compare that to 20 years ago when that number was 62% of people living in marriage or partnership, and the the percentage of people living with their parents was only in the teens. 
developmental stunting is, is being tracked and marked and research studies are being done in our youth, in our children, uh, from youth all the way through high school. And people are tracking the, the effects and influences of social media where this trend is moving us towards a society that is more and more peer-oriented than mentor or parent parental-oriented, right? So we have peers leading and influencing other peers, the blind leading the blind. So we know in reality we can't live as though we are children. As much as we want to, as, as convenient as that might sound, we cannot live as though we are children, which is what Paul is trying to get at. And we know that, too, in our own inherent desires, because we, ha- we all have some sort of inkling of wanting to mature, wanting to grow up. So as we pause, and even as I have this confession to make, I've preached this sermon before at City Reformed two and a half years ago. Uh, and I say that, I share that to say, think of where you were two and a half years ago. This was right around when the pandemic was first starting, so about May of 2020. Think of where you were exactly in May of 2020. What was your life like? Who were the people that were important in your life? What were some of the things that you were prioritizing? What were some of the things that you were scheduling for? What were some of the things that you were budgeting for? And now think of you now and try to compare those versions of yourself. For some of you, you might think, well, wow, I've, I've grown a lot in those two and a half years. I'm really thankful for that time. And maybe for others, it's a reality check to say, man, two and a half years went by really fast, and I don't know that I've changed much. And I, and I bring up that exercise for us to say, <clears throat> and even for me as a preacher and how I've changed since the last time I've preached this sermon is that we all have this desire to, to be better versions of ourselves. So we, we repeat that exercise that we just did. Who were we 10 years ago? Who were we last year? Who were we last week? How was I doing yesterday? And so we, we kind of make these evaluations. We assess, okay, what are the things in my life that, that I want to continue? Or what are some patterns in my life that I think I should reassess? We make adjustments, we make tweaks, we make wholesale changes to try to better our lives, to become better versions of ourselves. That's why we set goals. That's why we make New Year's resolutions. That's why we budget our money and our schedule and our time. And so Paul is trying to make an appeal for maturity, as I am doing now, that we need to change. We cannot always act as we used to when we were children. So not only do we see an individual benefit, we also see corporate, communal benefits of maturity, right? There's a reason why in the world of sports, there's, there's a high emphasis and value on veteran players or even veteran coaches. Teams and, and franchises and fans want people who have been there, who have that experience, who, who knows what it's like to feel the nerves of, of postseason play, and they want them to be on that roster to help even out and balance the team of, of the young players or whatnot. There's a reason why for us as parents, we want our teachers in the education system to be mature to be seasoned, to be experienced, to have been around the block, to know the needs of our kids, to know how to be present with them, to not just teach a curriculum, but to actually teach the whole person. 
There's a reason why we want medical professionals to be knowledgeable. Have you ever sat in an emergency room and you see their name tag and it says first year resident and you're kind of like, can I get the attending physician here, right? <clears throat> and lastly, there's a reason why you want your church leaders to be mature. There's a reason why you want somebody from the pulpit, somebody who's going to meet you in the lowest of your lows, somebody who's going to answer these tough theological questions that you come up in your life, and somebody who's seasoned in the Word of God, who has been, been in situations with other people to know, to hear you, to preach the gospel to you, to love you in those ways. There are communal benefits to maturity. We cannot rely on everyone being childlike. And lastly, there's on a broader existential level a value of maturity. Maturity actually gives us purpose. We're called to change. We've been created to be renewed, to grow, to become more like Christ. There's a reason why when we, when we go to the grocery store and we pick fruits and produce and vegetables that we pick them at a certain time that they have to be matured to a certain degree, or else they actually lose their purpose. They lose their value in what they're supposed to do. So maturity, being mature, brothers and sisters in Christ, is actually who God created us to be. And what Paul is trying to say here is that to attain maturity, to get there, the linchpin, the, the source of it is love. We know we have the love of Christ by, by seeing and, and, and assessing the level of maturity. But also on the flip side of that, we know that we are mature because of the love for Christ that we have. It's a self-authenticating cyclical, cyclical truth. So then how do we define maturity? What does uh, a love that is matured even look like? On a practical level, is maturity a, an age or a life stage? Right? The, the, the drinking age in our country is 21. You can vote and consider an adult at 18. You can see R-rated movies at 17. You can begin working in some states as early as 14. Like, where does maturity kick in there? Who is mature enough to engage in some of these things? Or is it after you've graduated high school, college? Is it after you've gotten married? Is it after you've had kids? Is it after you've reached a certain point in your career? Right? And we know that none of these things can, in a textbook way, define maturity because, as the one-line reflection on your cover there says, aging is mandatory, but maturing is optional. It doesn't mean that we, when we hit these checkpoints that necessarily a certain level of maturity is going to happen. So how do we define maturity? Psychology Today actually gave a uh, posted and, and published in an article, it says the seven marks of a, of a mature person. Seven marks of a mature person, and they are the, the ability to keep long-term commitments, unshaken by flattery or criticism, possess a spirit of humility, they can make decisions based on their character and not their feelings, they can express gratitude consistently, Prioritize others before yourself. And lastly, you can seek wisdom before acting. Now, as you hear those seven marks, you might be able to sit there and say, actually, I agree with a lot of those, if not all of those. And as a preacher, I will also agree with all of these marks. Not to say that it be because it comes from psychology today, but because these are all actually very biblical principles. 
able to keep long-term commitments. We exist in a covenant relationship with God. We exist in a church that says, I'm going to be devoted to the Lord and to my brothers and sisters. When we enter into a covenant of marriage, I'm going to make this commitment with this person through thick and thin. Unshaken by flattery or criticism because of who we know our identities to be in Christ and nothing else. Possess a spirit of humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. James 4.10 Make decisions based on character and not feelings. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3.5 Express gratitude consistently. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Prioritize others before yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And lastly, seek wisdom before acting. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1, 7. So, as we consider what it actually looks like to be mature, there's very real sentiments that we can derive from the world around us, but the true source of maturity comes from the Word of God, comes from our relationship with the Lord, so that as we read this age-old passage that love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We don't mature because we follow these laws of love to the T. But when we see these sentiments of love and how they're fulfilled in Jesus, so that when we read this, we say, Jesus is patient and kind. He does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. And as we continue on, if you look in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then, I shall, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And therein lies the gospel. When you consider this doctrine of, of sin, of who you are immersed, irreparably destroyed and broken by sin, in your own temptations, in your own brokenness. And, when, and then when you consider that the Lord Jesus came, in this world, as a man, to die for us, to die for that very sin, so that we might have eternal life in him. And when you can see beyond those words that I just recited as mere theology or mere words, and you can read Paul's words and say, so that I can be fully known, that God did this for you, to enter into relationship with you, to love you so that you can love others in the same way. That's what Paul is trying to exhort the church in Corinth. That's what Paul is trying to exhort the church in modern day 2022 Pittsburgh for city reformed. And lastly, to close with this, as Paul closes in verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
And if you'll turn your bulletin there on the next page of under additional scriptures, Paul sort of gives a little bit more flesh behind what he means by that from Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So faith is there. Faith is a part of it. Faith allowed us to believe that Jesus was Lord, that He died for us. He believed in this past reality. And then He continues, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So that in the life that we live now, when we suffer, when we see the brokenness and the reality of our sin, we have a future hope to say and know that Jesus is is coming to restore all those things. So we have faith and hope, very crucial, important things, but again, the linchpin as Paul continues, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when we consider the, the historical trend of the faith that we experience then and now and the hope that we have in Jesus, all of that is wrapped together in the love that we experience in Jesus. So when you ask yourself that question, where was I two and a half years ago? Where was I 10 years ago? Where was I yesterday? Ask yourself this question. How has Jesus made a difference? How has Jesus played a role in your life from then till now? What role does the Holy Spirit have in your life to make you more like Christ? How does the patient, kind, humble, non-insistent, truth-rejoicing love of Jesus help you bear, believe, hope, and endure all things? Is your life geared towards the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of God, and also enjoying this loving relationship with Him? And that's where we leave us, whether you've heard this sermon and remember it from two and a half years ago, or whether you're hearing it now for the first time, that the love of Christ is what binds that all together, is what binds us all together, that it's not just by our mere gifts and what we're capable of doing and, and who we are and what difference we're able to make, but if none of that is not done in the love of Jesus, then we have nothing. When we recite, I am a sinner justly deserving his displeasure without hope except for his sovereign mercy in the incarnation, the life, death, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, does that bring you to both tears of grief and joy? This is the kind of love that Paul offers, that Jesus is offering you, and that we will practice at this table as we reflect on his goodness and his glory. Let's pray together.